When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The following podcast contains explicit language. I fear that the Senate I would be defending no longer exists. It breaks my heart to find us in this position. He's a picture of the kind of justice we should have on the Supreme Court. I cannot support this nomination. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who gave a warmer reception to Egypt's military dictator than to Germany's democratically elected chancellor. That would be Donald Trump. And I'm Jacob Weisberg, back from a week off, not at all tan, at best partially rested, but totally ready to talk about the fight over the Neil Gorsuch nomination. This has turned into a big strategic issue for the Democrats. They're almost certainly not going to be able to block Gorsuch's confirmation. But Chuck Schumer, the Senate minority leader, has decided that it makes sense to filibuster it anyhow. And that will likely result in the nuclear option, the end of the Senate filibuster for all future Supreme Court nominees. Is that a good idea? And are there any good reasons beyond just payback for the Republican blockade of Merrick Garland to vote against Gorsuch? I'll be back to ask Legal Eagle Emily Bazelon what she'd do right after we do the tweets. When will sleepy-eyed Chuck Todd and NBC News start talking about the Obama surveillance scandal and stop with the fake Trump-Russia story? It is the same fake news media that said there is no path to victory for Trump that is now pushing the phony Russia story a total scam. Anybody, especially the fake news media, who thinks that repeal and replace of Obamacare is dead does not know the love and strength of our party. Was the brother of John Podesta paid big money to get the sanctions on Russia lifted? Did Hillary know? Did Hillary Clinton ever apologize for receiving the answers to the debate? Just asking. I 
I would like to welcome back Emily Bazelon. She's a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine, and she's the Truman Capote Fellow at Yale Law School. Podcast listeners know her, of course, from the Slate Political Gab Fest. Emily, welcome to the show. Hey, so nice to be here. So the news this week is that Democrats are going to filibuster the Gorsuch nomination. They're going to make Mitch McConnell go nuclear, to, to, to use the so-called nuclear option to eliminate the possibility of filibustering a Supreme Court nomination. And then presumably the Republicans will vote Gorsuch's nomination in by an absolute majority, but not a supermajority. What do you think? Is, is this a good move for the Democrats? Is that the right strategy? You know, I think that it is basically useless, but also necessary. <laughs> and what I mean by that is they're not going to derail Gorsuch's nomination. And the filibuster will be gone. And in the short term, at least, that will cost the Democrats since the Republicans control the Senate. But this is what their base demanded. And I think if the Democrats were not fighting Gorsuch in this way, there would be just like a real sense of disappointment and betrayal from um, a lot of Democratic voters. You have a couple arguments against doing this. One comes from the Democrats who say, we'll save this use of the filibuster for when it could make a difference. That is, Gorsuch is replacing Scalia. He doesn't really shift the balance on the court. But the next nominee, if he or she were replacing a liberal, more liberal justice, could shift the balance. And, you know, you won't have this weapon to use anymore. Does that make any sense? Well, I don't know how much of a weapon it is if you only get to use it once. I mean, it seems to me obvious that the Republicans would scrap it the next time. You know, I think there are sort of two other things to think about. One is that I don't think the Democrats would be filibustering Gorsuch if it weren't for the ghost of Merrick Garland, who, which uh, shadows these proceedings. Um, this is payback in political terms. And then the second thing is whether um, there would be some political gain on the margins for Democrats if they were courting the end of the filibuster in the kind of scenario you're talking about, whether that would be a better, more sympathetic case to make, I guess, for moderate and independent voters and make the Republicans seem less, uh, just less appealing in all of this. But I feel like the devil's advocate argument to that is that when Mitch McConnell led the Republicans in completely blocking the Garland nomination last year, he proved that there isn't much political price to pay for this kind of, you know, Senate rule obstructionism, like Senate rule changing um, obstructionist tactics for the court. And so I just am not sure what the great utility of waiting for the next time really is for the Democrats. And you know, take away the current balance of power in the Senate. If there weren't a filibuster, presumably Democrats, liberals would not support creating one because it's an anti-democratic, anti-majoritarian mechanism. And now, obviously, the Senate itself is a less democratic body filled with all of these anti-majoritarian checks. But liberals generally are, want to be on the side of things being more one man, one vote democratic. And the filibuster does work against that, right? That's right. And I think the question, though, is whether this is a particularly unfortunate moment <laughs> for the filibuster to end. And I don't mean that in a partisan sense because the Democrats are out of power. I mean, because this is a moment where we're seeing um, the Trump administration blow through so many norms. And so in this particular 
particular timing to have the Senate blow through its own tradition of 60 votes, which requires bipartisan support almost always. That seems like it's just kind of too bad because it's one more destabilizing factor in Washington. But um, that doesn't negate everything you just said. Now, you made the point that this is mostly about the unfairness uh, around Merrick Garland and that a lot of Democrats are saying, look, president does get to pick his justices. If you're going to pick a conservative, this Gorsuch fellow seems okay. I'm not opposing him because of who he is, but because of what you guys did to Garland. That's not your view exactly. You wrote a piece that was in the Week in Review on Sunday with Eric Posner, a colleague of yours who teaches at University of Chicago Law School suggesting that Gorsuch's political philosophy is extreme and at least in one very on one very specific philosophical issue really quite dangerous where do you see Gorsuch as extreme or dangerous or a threat Eric and I were writing about Gorsuch's potential attack on the administrative state. And so the context for this of course I mean that phrase will probably conjure up for a lot of your listeners um a quotable statement of Steve Bannon's where he said that, you know, he wants to he hopes the Trump administration will dismantle the administrative state. So what he's talking about and what Gorsuch is talking about are federal agencies. Since the 30s, they have become an extremely important arm of the federal government. You know, we could list off a dozen of them. The EPA, OSHA, the Department of Labor, um, the Consumer Financial Protection Board. You can include in this the Department of Homeland Security. We have this very large um, apparatus in Washington. And a lot of what it does is take the laws that Congress makes and turn them into regulations. Um, and this has been its role, like I said, basically since the 30s. And it's where we get a lot of environmental protection and consumer protection and workplace standards. And it's also how we regulate the financial markets, right? I mean, businesses rely on these agencies for order and stability and all kinds of rules that help them function. So Gorsuch has um, questioned all of this um, way the government works in a couple of key ways. So if you go back to the 30s, FDR passed a law called the National Industrial Recovery Act, and it was challenged at the Supreme Court. And the issue was whether Congress had the power to delegate rulemaking authority. In this case, it was a code for regulating poultry um, plants, whether Congress had the authority to delegate that power to the federal government, to the federal agencies. And the Supreme Court in 1935 said no. And this was a big blow to the New Deal. And then it just kind of, as a legal matter, ends. The Supreme Court changes hands. There's only one other case that follows this um this theory. It's a constitutional theory about separation of powers. So it's called the non-delegation doctrine. So essentially, it's like a dead end in the law. It would have been a way of really limiting Congress's power to de delegate authority for making all kinds of regulations. But it like goes poof in terms of legal precedent. But this is just ju just to pause on that a second, Emily. I mean, the non-delegation doctrine is a, is a really fundamental issue because Article one of the Constitution says that Congress makes the laws and the president, the executive branch, executes them. And what the court said was happening that was unconstitutional in that issue was Congress was letting someone else make laws for it, namely the executive branch, namely this new – in the, that New Deal case, this particular new agency. But that that has since become massively accepted practice. But it is at some basic level flies in the face of what 
the Constitution says, which is that the legislative branch has to make the laws, not the alphabet soup of executive branch agencies. Well, maybe. I mean, it depends if you think that those agencies are making law or if you think that regulation codifying rules is like based on the laws Congress makes is like a different step. That's like a right. That's the question is whether regulation is law or 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 regulation is just the interpretation of law. Exactly. And so wherever you land on that larger question, what happened after the 1930s was, as we've been saying, the executive um, branch expanded dramatically and started doing all kinds of rulemaking. So fast forward to the 1980s, um, the Reagan administration EPA wanted to change a rule and make it basically easier for power plants to emit certain pollutants. Um, they were weakening the, res- the standards. And somebody, an environmental group, the NRDC, challenged this change in rulemaking. And the case went up to the Supreme Court. Um, and in this famous rule called Chevron Deference, famous, that is, to law students and maybe some lawyers uh, who haven't forgotten what they learned in, in administrative law classes. Um, the Supreme Court in 1984 said that the Reagan administration EPA had the power to change this rule about emitting pollutants. And the reason was, the court said, that if Congress writes a law and some of it's ambiguous, like it's just not super clear and detailed what Congress meant, then the agency has the power to interpret that law. And as long as the agency's interpretation is reasonable, judges will defer to the agency's reading. That's the Chevron decision. The Chevron decision says the agencies get to make the interpretation and the courts should let them do that. Yeah, I mean, not totally. It's not like the end of the matter, right? But the rule is that courts defer to agencies. They don't like start from scratch and judge both sides equally. They basically like put a thumb on the scale for agency rulings. And the idea was sort of twofold um, at the time. And let's also remember, this was not at the time viewed as like a liberal leaning rule. It was a defense of the Reagan administration um, pulling back on regulation. And Justice Scalia was a big fan of Chevron deference. And what he said in defense of it was, look, things change really quickly in the economy, um, in lots of sectors of the market. And we can't wait around for Congress to write like super specific, really long, detailed laws. We have this whole apparatus, this executive branch that can move more quickly and has more expertise to make these kinds of laws um, and to make these kinds of rules. Right now, I'm like slipping myself and I'm talking about this. And so Chevron deference kind of put agencies again, gave agencies more power in this case, vis-a-vis judges. And the idea was like, okay, a lone judge with the few people who just graduated from law school clerking for him or her is not in a good position to make these like potentially technical judgments about particulate levels of a toxin or whatever. And judges should essentially give the agencies the benefit of the doubt. And that rule has been really important, again, to what we think of as the administrative state. So Gorsuch um, is a fan of the old non-delegation doctrine, kind of resurrecting that rule from the 30s. And he also has questioned deeply Chevron deference, which, again, um, would, you know, really change how the administrative state functions if you were ever to get a majority for overturning that rule on the Supreme Court. So does that make Gorsuch a Bannonite? I mean, is that where we got Gorsuch in, in that he has this agenda that matches up with what Bannon is saying about getting rid of the administrative administrative state? Because if you want to get rid of this New Deal legacy 
agencies that have this power, the way you do it is by bringing back the non-delegation doctrine and reversing the Chevron decision. Right. So, I mean, I'm not uh, arguing that I think like Gorsuch and Bannon were like up at night discussing this a year or two ago when Gorsuch um, wrote about it. But it sounds like they're on the same wavelength from what you're saying about this. Yeah, Yeah. they're drinking the same tea, right? I mean, this is an attack on big government, on government at all. And, you know, the federal government in particular, which tends to be something that Democrats defend and Republicans rip into. And so in that sense, like there's a larger kind of gestalt here that Bannon and Gorsuch share. But to be fair, there is actually a liberal line of thinking that this non-delegation doctrine is actually a good thing that you should have. Congress making the laws and all of that uh, power that has devolved to the executive branch agencies would be more democratic power, more accountable if it was back where it was originally in Congress. You know, and you have one of my uh, kind of heroes was the political thinker Theodore Lowy, who died this year. I don't know if you know about his work, but he he was a both a critic but a great advocate of liberalism. He wrote a famous book called The End of Liberalism in the 70s. And he thought that dropping the non-delegation doctrine was a huge mistake liberals made, that all Mm -hmm. this stuff should be happening inside Congress. So that may be esoteric, but it points out that this is not simply a radical right-wing idea. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, my grandfather was on the D.C. Circuit, and he had a case also in the 80s in which he called for higher levels of administrative review in terms of fact-finding. But it's the kind of decision that makes me wonder if he would have been a big skeptic of Chevron deference. So I think there are two apolitical, apartisan reasons to question, to, to wonder about both of these rules. And so one is like, maybe if Congress wasn't um, using the agencies as a crutch, it would write better laws that were less vague and were clearer. Now, I think you can also wonder if Congress is really the best position to do that, because the problem with how democratic Congress is relative to agencies is that it's also susceptible to lobbyists coming at it and writing as many regulations and as many like like detailed provisions in a law as possible for it for Congress. So that's so one so are bu- so are bureaucrats and they're and they're in the agencies and they're fully protected. I mean, at least in Congress, if you do something sleazy as a democratic re- remedy, you can lose the next election. But if, if you're- people care, right? Because like part of the problem is we're talking here about the fine print, which tends to be things that lobbyists have more power and voters don't know about. But yes, of course you're right. Yeah, but let's, um, we're, we're getting a, we're getting a little wonky here. But I want to ask you a little more broadly <laughs> about Gorsuch's. Uh, judicial philosophy. I think people have have also written that he has an affinity for what's called natural law theory, which is often opposed to positive law theory. I'm not sure I completely understand what natural (laughs) law theory means in Gorsuch's cases, but presumably it's the positive law theory is that the law is only what laws are passed and what laws are on the books. Natural law suggests that there's a higher law, whether it comes from God or somewhere else, but the judges have to take into account not just what the law says, but what law might exist outside of laws that are written down. Yeah. So what we're talking about really, I think, or at least my way of understanding these phrases is that um, Gorsuch and other conservative judges are drawn to theories of judging that seem to rely on some like abstract set of principles, like as if 
this being on the Supreme Court is like turning a crank in a machine. And as long as you or or um, following an algorithm and as long as you like appeal to the higher principles, you're going to get an answer spit out that is somehow free of your own values and predilections as a judge. It's not um, convincing to me because I think what you see from conservative judges, whether they're framing their decisions in natural law theory or in originalism, which is, you know, the idea of reading the Constitution in terms of the meaning it had when it was written, whatever they call it, they make exceptions, big exceptions. And they also tend, not always, but often to reach the results they would like to reach um, ideologically. And they basically always reach or almost always reach those results when there is some big socially contested fraught case on the line, like you're so abortion c- or gun rights. You're so cynical. So their reach doesn't matter whether they have a, whether they have a philosophical, philosophical theory or not, because they're going to make the political decision they want anyway. And it's just window dressing. It's not that it never matters. Look, every judge and really every lawyer starts with the text. And now we're talking about originalism or the natural law theory. But like everybody looks at the word on the page. The question is whether the historical understanding of those words in the page is the only thing that matters. And if you go back to the 18th century or sometimes the 19th century, like when the 14th Amendment was written, and you look at how the people who drafted those words then thought, you end up with a court and with law that's frozen in time and that's less progressive nine times out of 10. The maybe exception is the way Gorsuch and Justice Scalia have approached the Fourth Amendment and their ideas about um, what is unreasonable search and seizure in a modern context. But most of the time, they end up with a conservative answer. And so I'm skeptical. Yeah, I guess what I'm trying to decide is uh, if you put Merrick Garland aside, whether Senator Weisberg would want to vote for this Gorsuch guy. And I'm willing to sort of let him go on on your whole uh, administrative state issue, although I think it's important. But it does concern me that he thinks this inviolability of life principle is something that matters to judges. He wrote a whole book against assisted suicide. And my bigger concern is that he is going to be, bring some sort of religiously based framework to bear on his decision making and maybe decide that he can, you know, he can overturn laws, whether having to do with abortion or a, a physician assisted suicide or whatever, without them being much based on textualism. Right. I mean, the other thing to think about with abortion, for sure, is that there is a very, I would argue, very strong constitutional argument for abortion based on the 14th Amendment and equal protection and women's rights and how we've come to understand women's liberty. But that is not what Roe versus Wade talks about at all. It's a decision that picked up on the idea that there's somehow a right to privacy in the Constitution, even though those words are not in the Constitution, and then couched that right to privacy mostly in terms of the rights of doctors to treat their patients. It was written by Harry Blackman in 1973. You know, Justice Ginsburg and lots of other people have said if they had it to do over, it would have a different basis. But that's where we are. And so it it would you can write it persuade. I mean, obviously, 
obviously it would be a huge bombshell for the court to overturn Roe. But if you're Gorsuch, it is really not hard to make an originalist argument against Roe versus Wade. You just say, like, show me the right to privacy in the Constitution. I think this whole line of cases is wrong. I'm sorry. Yeah. And how about you, uh, Senator Bazelon? So I think we're both supporting the filibuster. But if there were not this Garland issue and, and put the filibuster aside, the end of the day, would you vote for him? Yes, I think I probably would. And here's why. So, I mean, to me, you can't take Garland out of the equation. So that like but but you're you've you've presented me with a different hypothetical in the hypothetical you're talking about. We're in a more functional land for the Senate in which the president gets to pick people. And if those people are qualified and scandal free and don't have like hugely alarming red flags hanging from their every limb, then I don't really think that ideological difference is a basis for rejecting them. And the reason I say that is not that I think I will agree with Gorsuch's stances on the court. I probably won't. I think the Supreme Court is a body that combines law and ideology, and I'd rather have the ideologies like well represented so the justices can duke it out. I've been speaking to Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine, Yale Law School, and the Slate Political Gab Fest. Emily, thanks for talking to me. Thanks for having me. That's it for today's show, but we have some announcements. First, remember the Trumpcast Book Club? Our April book is The Confidence Man by Herman Melville. I've been reading it. It is a challenging book. It is totally fascinating. We're going to be discussing it later this month. Please read it along with us. And we're doing another live show at the Tribeca Film Festival on April 30th at 8.15 with Jamel Bowie, Virginia Heffernan, and me. Tickets are available at Slate.com slash live. Today's show was produced by Jason DeLeon. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. And John D. Domenico, he's our voice of Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. ProPublica sounds like some crappy supermarket chain. And I guess that's fitting because they're a crappy left-wing blog that doesn't know anything about anything. Sean Spicer did a fantastic job. I think everyone knows they're a left-leaning fake news website. I I really don't understand how they're still in business. They're terrible. They made up some terrible, terrible things about me and my finances. And frankly, I own these companies. If I want to take money out, I can take money out. It doesn't matter. They're my companies. That's what I do. I own the companies, so I take money out. So first of all, ProPublica is wrong. Secondly, fake news site. Third, I could do whatever I like. And what they wrote about me changing documents or somebody changing documents, lies, total, total lies.